Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Welcome back, everyone. My name is Lydia Finette, and you are here with me on Claim Your Confidence in Rockefeller Center and Newsstand Studios. We're sitting in our glass front booth, so please stop by the next time you're here. Today, I have an incredible guest in front of me, Emily Hikade. But first, a word from our sponsors. Emily Hikade, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lydia. This is an amazing experience already. There's people stopping and walking and saying hello. I love it. It makes it really feel a little bit more like a podcast, but also kind of a show. Yes, it does. Very fun. It's a whole experience. Well, I'm so excited to have you for so many reasons. So let me tell our guests a little bit about who you are and what you've done, because you have a very unusual story. And I have to admit, I was so excited to get into the booth this morning to have this conversation with you. So Emily is the founder and CEO of the beloved pajama company, Petite Plume. If you've ever seen Prince George in his little robe shaking Barack Obama's hand, He was in Petite Plume, ladies and gentlemen. Mm -hmm. So just understand this is a brand that you've probably seen a million times and you will only continue to see from here. But what you probably would not have thought about is that for nearly two decades, Emily worked for the CIA as the operations officer in the clandestine service. So she served in austere conditions all over the world in very remote regions, many of which were war-torn. And She also has four boys. So there are a lot of things to unpack here and I'm really looking forward to it. But I will say before we even start that Emily just said the funniest thing before the podcast started, which was, I'm usually the one who's asking the questions, which seemed a little scary. I'm not going (laughs) to (laughs) lie. Coming from a CIA agent at one time in her life. But let's start at the beginning because this is a conversation about confidence. This is a conversation about your life and your story. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin. It's about 30,000 people. I went to a small Catholic school growing up. New York was a really far place in my mind, as was Washington, as was the Middle East. It's been a remarkable journey. I have to say that before moving to the Chicago area, I lived in nine different countries in the Middle East, Asia, and Africa. And coming back to the U.S. was really a remarkable journey. I'm skipping way ahead. That's okay. (laughs) This is your life, so you can skip all over. But you grew up in Wisconsin, and obviously these travels have taken you all over the world. Did you travel a lot as a child? No. My mom said I used to wander around in the backyard and pretend that I spoke a foreign language long before I actually did. So central Wisconsin, the big summer trip was northern Wisconsin. (laughs) (laughs) Long road trip there. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So we would go up to a lake up north. And when you're living in central Wisconsin, there's not a lot of up north until you hit Canada. Yeah. So it is rather funny from that perspective. You know, we did the trip down to Disney World, which was amazing, but it wasn't these wild European journeys in the summer or any other time for that matter. And so what were you like as a child? That's a great question. And actually knowing that that question might come, I was on the plane this morning texting my childhood friends and my mom and saying, did I have confidence as a child? Because in my head, I didn't have the most confidence. I wasn't walking into a room saying I'm the smartest one here. I didn't have that level of confidence, but I was never afraid of any situation. Interesting. So I think that I perhaps exuded confidence 
as I went into any situation, but it wasn't necessarily innate. It didn't come naturally to you. Right. I think it was, I was never afraid of any situation. I think I was a risk taker within normal bounds. My mom reminded me this morning in a text that I would climb to the top of the tree beyond where any child should be climbing. I was the first one to raise my hand in any situation and I was always out for new adventures. Oh, there you go. I think that's sort of the triumvirate of anyone who goes into any kind of CIA job, I should think, is someone who's willing to go further, faster, without any fear, right? Absolutely. I think that was it. It was so interesting the way that she had said it. Most of us, a lot of us grew up from kindergarten all the way through college at the same school. Mm -hmm. We had exchange students come in, people who transferred in from even an exotic place like California. I was the first one there saying, hey, you know, they had a different accent. They came with a tan. (laughs) And what was the world that you were living in? Yeah. And I was so genuinely interested. And you can fast forward that to sitting across the table from an Iraqi who may or may not be involved with like the chemical weapons program. And I'm genuinely there sitting there interested in their story and how they grew up and where it led them to where they are in order to get to that same goal. That's amazing. It's interesting to be able to tie that back to your youth, just a general curiosity for life really more than anything. Mm -hmm. So you were in Wisconsin. Did you go to college in Wisconsin? I didn't. I went to Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, and I had a scholarship there. And from Notre Dame, I had a scholarship to Princeton, which I did not take because I was eager. I had a a job offer at the White House. Uh What was that for? I was about a step above an intern. (laughs) I was an aide. At that point, I already spoke three languages. And that just came naturally to you? That was something that you majored in in college? Or how did you get into the three languages? Because that's, by the way, is not a totally normal thing for the United States of America, especially (laughs) for someone, I think, who didn't grow up in a city where there are people coming in and out speaking different languages constantly. Mm -hmm. So fast forward or go back to, rewind back to Wisconsin. I begged my parents to let me go study overseas. I would bike myself to the library back when we had you know, languages on tape or audiobooks where you could learn a language from three cassettes. I think I was 14 before they finally acquiesced. Mm -hmm. And I went on an exchange program to the south of France in the summer. And I was totally immersed in the French language. Once I experienced that, there was absolutely no going back. So interesting. So by the time I went to college, I already spoke French fluently. And then while I was at the university, I learned German. And I went and studied abroad in Austria. And I was the first Notre Dame student to ever do two studies abroad in two different languages. I really enjoyed that. So then when I did have the opportunity to go overseas, I certainly didn't join the agency to do European tours. Right. You know, I had lived in France. I lived in Austria. I joined to go to the Middle East. You know, it was right after 9-11. Let's track back for just a second. So you're at the White House Mm -hmm. and you're an aide. So at this point, are you aware of the CIA? Are you aware of that element of the government or... Was it something you were always headed towards, I guess is really my question. I knew from a young age, and you can ask my mom. Again, this is something she always knew that I was going to be far away. She just hoped that I would be on this side of the pond. (laughs) You know, especially when grandchildren came into it and whatnot. When I was at the White House, I think I was still finding my path. My stint at the White House was very brief, and that was by choice. It was less than a year, and then I moved on once I was accepted over at the State Department. I really didn't like the fact that at the White House, it was very partisan. I don't think it matters who's sitting in the Oval Office. I think the questions were always, are you on the left or are are you on the right? 
when I think what I liked about the State Department is that we were moving together in the same direction. Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes obsessing about which side you're on hinders us. I truly believe that when the left and the right work together, that we're unstoppable. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got to where we are now as a country. And it's really remarkable. And I hope that we can get back on that path. Yeah. But in my own journey, I then jumped over to the State Department where I worked in the operations center. I was the one that would, you know, support Secretary Albright when she was traveling. There'd be the night shift, right? Answer the phone, state ops, Emily speaking. Oh my goodness. You know, and I remember doing a day shift when the inauguration was going on of George W. Bush. And we're just all kind of relaxed to thinking, you know, it's a transition. It's just nothing's, you know, present happening. And the phone rings and I said, state ops, Emily speaking. And I hear, Emily, this is Secretary Powell. Tell me what's going on in the world. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, sorry, I was just having a snack at my desk. <laughs> I was ready. I was yeah. ready because we have the briefing. This is what we our job is. Yeah. We would often drive out to, whether it was Secretary Albright or Secretary Powell, we would be the ones delivering the morning briefings. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of natural. Then when I parlayed that over to the agency, yeah. by this point, I spoke three languages and I think it felt like a more natural step. Like my cover was perfect because I could talk the talk and walk the walk. I'd already been at the State Department. So it was a seamless transition, shall we say. And are you recruited for that job or is that something you apply for? I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah, they identify you as having the linguistic capabilities. You said September 11th was kind of a turning point for you. Is that correct? Yes, I was already working at Langley. And that was truly, for most people around the world, 9-11 was a really big day. I think everybody knows where they were on 9-11. Yeah. It's not limited to our country. And that was something that surprised me living overseas. Everybody remembers where they were. Yeah. I was at headquarters and that day changed everything. I started learning Russian on September 10th, 2001. I had one Russian class and now I speak Arabic. So it changed everything. I think... It's hard to remember back because we're now 22 years it's hard to almost believe. later. Yeah. But back then we were still in the vestiges of the Cold War. Yeah. I really thought that I was going to be brought on to, you know, learn Russian and do a tour in Moscow and and that and everything changed on 9/11 and immediately after I worked around the clock all I did was counterterrorism. And I ran the Marine Corps Marathon that year. So I literally ran and worked and ran and worked. And it was really something. It was a remarkable time to be where I was. I can now talk about this, which I couldn't talk about up until a couple months ago, but I do remember Thanksgiving, I was in the basement at headquarters and I remember George Tennant and his wife pushing a little cart with, he had a cigar hanging out of his mouth and him and his wife were pushing a turkey through trying to give people a little bit of Thanksgiving yeah. in a time where we were all still very much in the middle of it. Yeah. And if you had told me that there wouldn't be another attack on US soil 20 years later, I not sure we would have believed you. And yeah. we've worked really, there's a lot of people behind the scenes right now that are still working incredibly hard to make sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah, I think we have to be right 100% of the time and the bad guys only have to be right once. Right, as we saw on September 11th. Mm -hmm. And obviously it had lasting effects on everyone, no matter where you were. And then you continued on at Langley and then went overseas at what point? Very quickly, I guess very quickly by government standards. <laughs> so 9-11 happened and we invaded Iraq in March and I was on the ground before 
I think by May. That's amazing. I was one of the first in before there was a green zone in Iraq. And so I know you can't really speak about where you were posted over time, but can you tell us a little bit about this? Because I know that this probably seems very normal to you, Emily, but as someone who's sitting here looking at you, you don't really seem to me to be the kind of person I would think would be jetting into unbelievable conflict zones, going into these sort of high stakes meetings, which I guess is probably why you're a good spy. <laughs> um, I would also like to say as an aside that I think you are actually the first spy that I've ever met. So I think that's very cool. Well, I, you know, you're not, you can't be sure though, can you? Right. I wish you hadn't said that. That's a little scary. <laughs> <laughs> but I will, I will also ask you one other question. And this is kind of um, a sidebar. Someone once told me, because I expressed interest in being a spy, having no linguistic capabilities whatsoever and being scared of my own shadow, um, that very tall people can't be spies because you are too recognizable. Is that true? No. Oh, that's good to know. So there is hope. There's hope. <laughs> there's there, hope there, for there's me there's now. Hope. This doesn't work out for you. I think you could, there, I can still get you some connections at Langley. All right. Well, don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe um, not the way to start your career. Exactly. <laughs> on a live podcast. That's true. So tell me back. Okay. So now you're in a place where everything must feel very foreign to you. You've never lived there before. You speak the language, but only fairly recently. What is it like to be an agent? Like, what do you feel like? And can you even say that? And if you can't, that's of course fine too. First of all, we're officers. Officers. CIA officers. Now we I recruit know. agents. Right. So when we talk about like the FBI's have their agents, mm -hmm. but we are always CIA officers and we recruit agents to spy on their country or commit espionage. Got it. Just so some there's some clarification there. Yeah. So I don't get yelled at from my friends. Yeah. <laughs> What's it like? Certainly in a place like Baghdad, it's really uh, probably not your standard nine to five for sure. You have to think that the temperatures in the summer breach 120 you're on the streets, you're taking enormous risks just to leave the compound. So back before there was a green zone, we all were around the airport. Mm -hmm. And just to leave the airport, you had to go on a road, which we fondly referred to as RPG Alley, oh, Lord. because there were apartment buildings on the side and occasionally there'd be shoulder held rockets that would be shot at your armored vehicle. So before you even got to your meeting, you had to go through RPG Alley in which case you would then get to your meeting. When I was there, Saddam Hussein was alive and well, was very new right after the invasion, as I mentioned. So not only did you go through RPG Alley, but then there were IEDs or improvised explosive devices. There were over a thousand IEDs laid within a month of the US arrival. Mm. And they were very effective. You know, it doesn't matter what level of armor you had, an IED would come from underneath and it's very difficult to protect against that. Yeah. Then you're going to a meeting where you can imagine there was a constant threat of fire as in attack right. and so on. And there have been certain situations. I can't really get into specifics yes, about that, but I can say that I have certainly been in meetings that have gone south and have led to explosions. I've had to flee meetings under suppression fire. Yeah. And then I have more lighthearted stories about getting a flat tire in an armored vehicle in downtown Baghdad in 120 degrees. Oh yeah. Where when they try to jack up the vehicle, the jack melts through the pavement. Things that you don't think about. Things that you don't think about. Yeah. And also stories that other people don't have, which makes your story so incredible. So once you've gone through this time in Baghdad, what happens next? You keep going at this point. You're deployed to other people. I know at some point you get married to someone who's also in the agency, correct? Mm -hmm. So take us through that path. 
Well, they said at the time this was pre-match.com mm-hmm. and free pre-Bumble. <laughs> yeah. So they said, look around on our first day at the agency. It's the best dating service in the world. Everybody's been drug tested, polygraphed, and likes to travel. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so it was. Um, it was after Baghdad. I did continue marching forward. And the funny thing is, is that when you start in a war zone, everything after that is easy. Yeah. Or you don't even think about it. Yeah. So so every single tour subsequent to that, it's like, oh, I don't have to go through RPG Alley on my way to work today. Yeah. You know, so now I probably had a higher risk threshold than most people. So then when it, w- it would come to the point where uh, you might be meeting somebody or you're concerned about them wearing a suicide vest or you're concerned about something, to me, it felt much more dialed down because it wasn't a daily threat. Yeah, absolutely. So you're just living with this existence now. And I can be 100% sincere when I say that I never thought about it, that it was a remarkable journey because, you know, a lot of the people I know were in that line of work as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it wasn't until you step back and I never talked about it with anybody. You just go to the next thing. So think about it. I lived in nine different countries in 15 years. And in that time I had children. Yeah. So you kind of have your head down and you're moving on to the next thing. And then you have your head down and you're moving on to the next thing. And you're trying to raise good people. You're trying to just continue on. At no point did I stop and say, wow, this has been really interesting. Yeah, until you did, Until I did, which is really recent. And I I can't stress that I'd never talked about this up until November. Even my children didn't know two months ago. There's so many things that are remarkable about that, but certainly the fact that this existence was taking place with your family, but without them even really understanding what they were. You said that they thought that you were diplomats, correct? Yeah. And so they were just living in these countries thinking both of their parents were diplomats. Yes. They never questioned it. They were shocked when we told them. They never even thought to doubt. You know, it was funny because I would never have said a word about it, but as we started to move back to the US and we kind of saw the writing was on the wall to someday roll back our cover. Mm-hmm. I also started to say, you know, diplomat with a focus on counterterrorism. It was sort of t- testing the waters a little bit to see how I could do it because it really is difficult to talk about yeah. that previous career when I-, I was under deep cover for so long. It's amazing to me that you can't even speak about it just using the words if you spent your whole life hiding it, then to be able to say it in a way must feel very freeing. And when we talk about confidence, that must make you feel more confident to be able to talk about something that before you could never even articulate. It's funny because somebody had said that to me before. They said, don't you feel great? And I I don't, I'm still getting used to it. Like yeah. I really could have taken it to my grave and I would have been fine. Yeah, I can tell that actually, even in this interview, I feel like as you're saying the words, you're choosing them very carefully. And I suspect it's probably because you're thinking, wait, can I say this? Everything that's coming out of your mouth, you're like, can I say that? Am I allowed to say that? I know, I might have to call you after this and be like, okay, wait, take that part out. <laughs> <laughs> that works too. So tell us the story of when all of this came to a head. You are traveling around the world. You are obviously deep undercover. You have three small children and there's a moment that all of this turns. So I was going to a high threat meeting on an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean and there was a storm and the lights went out on the plane and the plane started to spin sideways and people were screaming. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do in that moment except pray and all I could see were the faces of my three little boys at the time. I had three little boys and the youngest one wasn't even a year old. And I thought that I was going to leave them without a mom. And that was hard because they didn't choose this life. I did. My husband and I did, but they didn't. And so that was 
that was that was an aha moment, shall we say? And I wish it wouldn't have been quite so dramatic. Yeah, I would have done with um, I don't know, maybe a lightning bolt in the sky or something would have been fine with me. Yeah, you didn't need it to be that jarring, I'm sure. Yeah, that was a tough one. And it changed the course of my life. It really did. I had all these business ideas that I had been thinking about and there's never a great time to start a new career or a side hustle. There's never a great time to pivot. Yeah. Certainly not when you have a full-time job and three small kids, but you take that first step and then you take that second step and it leads you on a journey. Petite Plume launched a year later and here we are, it's eight years later, but it was sort of a side hustle. It took a little while till I actually could. Um, if you think launching a business is difficult, try it from East Africa. I, I can't even imagine. <laughs> but when you got off that plane, I mean, how quickly did this all happen? Was it sort of the next day where you said, I need to end my career in this and pivot to a new one? Is this something you'd have? Lydia, I'm a very for... determined person. All right, well, there you go. That's the answer, <laughs> the but next I day. No, I still stayed with it. I, yeah. I actually still, it was my side hustle for many years. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until... I I knew that when we moved back to the U.S. that we were going to have to, it would be very difficult to live on one government salary. Mm -hmm. So I, we sort of had a certain amount of time where we had to make Petit Plume profitable mm -hmm. and able for me to take a salary, even a small salary. Because as you talk to most entrepreneurs, those early lean years when you're building a company, I didn't take any kind of a salary for the first four years mm -hmm. until we moved back to the U.S. in a little bit and you start to work on that. And it's a challenge. Where did you get the idea for it? Was it, I mean, it is, so Petit Plume is luxury sleepwear. I mean, it is so beautiful. And every time you ever see anyone looking like that, you're like, first of all, you did not get out of bed looking like that, <laughs> I hope. Um, but everything you make is so beautiful. The colors, the fabrics, everything is so high touch. Where did the idea come from to start this line? So I had lived in France twice. I'm still in touch with a family that I met 30 years ago in the South of France. And then I also went to university. I studied, I did the exchange program with Notre Dame at Angers, which mm -hmm. is outside of Paris. In France, you can walk into literally the grocery store and you see these beautiful pajamas for kids that are 100% cotton. And they're these nice tickings and maybe a gingham or these very classic styles. And at the time, I couldn't find those for my kids on the US market. Mm -hmm. So my original dream was to create 100% cotton children's sleepwear in very classic colors. And Lydia, I wasn't thinking that I was going to create a multi-million dollar company. I was just thinking that I had to replace my government salary. Right, of course. Well, that's a real thing that a lot of people I'm sure can relate to, especially as we've gone through the pandemic and people have, especially in the past couple of years as we've gone into a recession, there are a lot of people who I know who need to supplement the salary of one person's making the money, the other person's not, or they've been taking job cuts or pay cuts. So I'm sure that a lot of people out there are nodding when you say that you needed to replace the salary. Mm -hmm. And you just take one step at a time. And my original idea to do 100% cotton children's pajamas was dashed very quickly by the CPSC. Okay. They said 100% cotton pajamas are illegal. Any fabrics worn on children ages six months to 14 have to be able to sustain a direct flame for three seconds without igniting. So to make those 100% cotton pajamas, we would have to dip them in chemicals, which were not an acceptable answer. Yeah. Uh, the whole idea I wanted to do it was to keep chemicals off of the children and the sleepwear, et cetera. So I'm very proud that we pioneered a fabric that's made of the top quality best cotton on the market and blended with an inherently flame retardant fiber that allows it to pass the tests without using any chemicals. 
Where did you learn all of this? Because now you're speaking about small manufacturing details. Start us at the very beginning. You have an idea. You're in East Africa. You decide that you want to start a pajama company. Your idea is dashed because you can't do this the way you thought you were going to do it. Where do you lead next? Walk us through the pivots. I always think this is an interesting part of the story. So it's interesting because I remember feeling devastated when I found out I couldn't do 100% cotton kids' pajamas, not with the classic style with the buttons and the nightgowns, et cetera, et cetera, that I used to get from my grandmother every Christmas. And then the universe unfolds as it should. And I remember reading, I want to credit this, I think it was the obituary of Robert Taylor who created liquid soap. And he said, every time he ran into a hurdle, he rejoiced. The harder the hurdle, the higher the hurdle, the better, because he knew half of his competitors had just quit. Wow, that is a great quote. In the last couple months, I've been looking for that quote and I can't find it, but it was so inspiring for me at the time. So if anybody does find it, please let me know. Yeah, absolutely. Send it along. <laughs> but it was because there was a time where I felt really daunted. And that quote was just changed around and said, yeah. So I went into this having lived in many third world countries where a lot of these factories are producing these. And I went into it. I got samples from 10 different factories. Could they make it to pass the test? Could they be soft? Some of the samples failed. There were a lot of processes, a lot of steps. Our very first line of pajamas were made in the same place where they make firemen's uniforms. Amazing. Yeah. So then we sort of perfected it and pioneered it. And by the time we actually got to the point of sale, we were in 200 stores in the first year. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. And so what was your marketing plan? What were you doing to get the word out? Was this just sort of word of mouth? Was this friends and family talking about it? What were you doing? I think at the time, there is a degree of naivete when you go in. I love the quote from Reid Hoffman that said, the start of an entrepreneurial journey is to jump off a cliff and build the plane on the way down. Yeah. <laughs> Every <laughs> entrepreneur is nodding as they listen yes, to that. Yes, exactly. Sure. So I sort of had this idea that I was bringing something that I thought was special to the market and I would hit launch and it would just... Evolve. Evolve. Yeah. And people would discover it. Of course. And there you go. I mean, at that time and what what is it, 2015, East Africa, I was like, wait, what is it, Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> so there was definitely a profound learning curve. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first week we launched having the first person buy who I wasn't related to or know personally was very exciting. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. And I feel like pretty much anyone who's ever created a business, someone was saying recently that they heard the Shopify ding of a sale going through and it was the most exciting thing that they'd ever heard. And they left it on high and their husband would always be like, can you please turn that off? She's like, no, this is the sound of money coming in. <laughs> I love the sound of money coming in. Um, so you had this incredible moment where you realize that this is not going to just take off by itself, but you have to take it off and really run with it. And you're in East Africa. When do you come back to the States? Three years after launch. Three years after launch. And do you have all four of your children at this point or only three? Excellent question. From the time that I launched until the time, um, 2018, when we moved to the Chicago area, we had our fourth child mm -hmm. and we moved to another country in East Africa. And I lost my father. Sorry. And it was a really interesting journey. I went on leave without pay for a little while so I could really focus on Petite Plume because we really needed to know if it was viable. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I would just go back when we moved to the US and continue working full-time at the agency was the plan. But lucky for us, Petite Plume was viable and it took off. It really did. And I think that it was a journey 
till we learned exactly what to do. I think only recently did we hire a proper PR team, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, Prince George wearing our pajamas was serendipity. How did that happen, by the way? I want to say karma. 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 How did Prince George get there? We did not send it to him. We had no idea. It was... Was it a gift? He could have, could have gotten from, a gift from, from somebody else. else. Yeah. It wasn't until after we saw it that we went back and saw that there were a few deliveries that were expedited overseas. So interesting. But it was right in that time when I had my fourth and there's all these interesting things about living a life overseas is that if you live in a third world country, the government pays to have you come back to the US or to your nearest medevac point to have your baby. But at the time, I mean, the government doesn't consider your husband to be a necessary presence at the birth of your child, which is a very antiquated, I think that they're working to change that. Long story short is they will evacuate medevac me and my dependents, but my husband has to take leave. So he tries to time it to the closest point of delivery. Oh goodness. So it's crazy when I look back on it, where my husband was still working in East Africa. I am back in the US living in a rental with three small children. I'm pregnant with a fourth. My dad is sick and I'm still running a company. Yeah, Those were some dark days. And then I remember getting a head cold. And at one point I'm curled up on the couch saying, this is too much. This is too much. You know, I'm not sure. It was a lot. Yeah. And then my husband would try to time it to come back in the country because you don't want to come back a week early and then be sitting there watching you saying, okay, here we go. Yeah. Um, My husband for our first one flew in from the Middle East and my water broke two af- two hours after he arrived. Oh, wow. Well done him. Yeah, that, that exactly. worked out very well. <laughs> oh. You know, it's so funny, just going back to what you were saying about the moment you're laying on the couch with a cold and your father's sick and you have three babies and you're expecting your fourth. Something I heard recently, which I think about a lot, is you only know the tens in life when you know the ones. And sometimes because you know the low of the low, the tens are so much higher as a result of that. And that probably is one of those moments that you can look back on. And as you talk about confidence, you talk about a confidence journey, having made it through a moment that dark and that low, and to be sitting here with a company that is profitable and is doing well. And there's still, I'm sure, a myriad of challenges with four boys every day, I'm sure. (laughs) But it's important that we also remember in life that there are low moments and it doesn't stay low forever. And sometimes you just need that reminder, Mm -hmm. you know? I don't know anybody Lydia, who has gone from zero to 80 or who has crossed the finish line without having remarkable highs and remarkable lows. Yeah. And I think we all just have to remember that that's what makes life interesting, right? Right. Or keeps us appreciating the good times because we've had the bad. Yeah. Like I said, I don't know anybody who's in their senior years saying, oh yeah, life's been a breeze. Yeah, it's <laughs> so true. It's very true. And I feel like that even at my age at 40, I'm starting to see that as well. And I feel like my parents had talked about that a lot before and I see it. It's interesting, the the wisdom of people above you, which I think in our country, a lot of people sort of dismiss, but you realize that it is wisdom. There are things that you learn and hear about people who've lived a longer life. It's wonderful to know that that kind of depth is available to you if you choose to go there and find it. I have a great quote yes. and I'm so excited I feel excited like you have so many it. quotes. <laughs> it's amazing. This one's from my husband's grandma, Grandma Sue, okay. great grandma Sue to my kids who passed at a hundred. She fell and broke her hip at a casino in Atlantic City. May we all be lucky to go I that mean, way. Well done. The quote is, is as she tried her first margarita when she was 93. She said, oh, Emily, I felt like I was 80 again. Oh, well done. I felt like I was 80 again. Just think about that. As we talk about being in our 40s and our back starts hurting and you get little aches and pains and whatnot, just think of great grandma Sue, who's 
felt like she was 80 again. So 80 is a good year. Yeah. 80's <laughs> a good year, it sounds like. I can't wait. I cannot wait. So what comes next for Petite Plume? Where do you see the company? How are you going to continue growing it? Lydia, I feel like the sky's the limit. I feel like we're just getting started. I think that every couple of years, I feel like I'm running a new company because you have a bigger team, you have, you know, retail department and you have an operations area and you have all of this and suddenly you're running a much larger company. And I just love the challenge of it. And I've got so many different ideas and I wake up every day really excited to bring this to bear. Yeah. Is it interesting for you having run operations for the CIA to now be running operations for Petite Plume? It is very interesting. <laughs> I think even on the toughest days with Petite Plume, I'm like, you know, today I'm not worried about anybody wearing a suicide vest. Right. That I'm sure is a completely different part of your life. And it also probably gives you a completely different perspective on everything you do. I mean, a lot of people I remember in my office used to joke like, we're not curing anything here. You know, when somebody senior would get upset about something. And in many ways, you have actually been in a situation where your meetings could be life or death. So now having the ability to enjoy the journey of what you're creating and watch this all go has to feel very light in mm -hmm. comparison and very joyful, I should think. It is a very different cadence. Mm -hmm. In the normal day of a CIA officer, you're planning for a mission and your mission is very intense. You know, whether it's a day, whether it's a meeting, whether it's several days, it's very intense. And then you have the most boring job in the world because you have to go back and write it up. Mm -hmm. So you go back to whether it's an embassy, whether it's back to the US, back to wherever it is, and then you sit and you write tedious cables that are very boring and you're not stressed on those days. I feel like when you're running a company, every morning is like, okay, what's gonna, what's the new surprise today? And sometimes, you know, you have the very best news and the very worst news on the very same day. Like, hey, we just had this amazing buy and we are gonna, you know, a million dollar order. And then suddenly you also find out that you just had a truck stolen and that has a million dollars worth of inventory, five million at retail, and you go, oh crap. <laughs> same day. <laughs> same the day. The one in the 10 on same day. <laughs> I, know, the 10. I know, yep, exactly. Well, Emily, this has been such a pleasure. Your story is so unique, and I feel like it's one of those things that when you read it, you almost can't believe it, but sitting across from you is such an honor. Thank you for everything you did during your time in the CIA, and thank you for the evolution of your career, which brings joy to so many people. So Emily Hakade, where can we find you? You can find Petite Plume on petiteplume.com. You can also find us in Neiman Marcus, Saks, Bloomingdale's, Nordstrom, and thousands of retailers throughout the country. Well, thank you for joining me in this Glassfront podcast booth where we've had people walking by the whole time. Taking pictures. Taking pictures. I know. Everyone so come by and join us. How do I go back to normal life now? I know. It does feel like that when I walk out of the <laughs> podcast booth. I'm like, oh, oh no, it's just me again. I'm just walking, <laughs> walking across the hallway. Well, I want to thank Joe, my incredible producer who is here and Rockefeller Center for giving me this incredible opportunity to be in this podcast booth. Again, my name is Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. And you can find me on Lydia Finette com. You can follow me along at Instagram at Lydia Finette. And I want to leave you with this one last question. Emily gave me, which might be my new quote, a quote about the fact that when you hit the high enough hurdles, your competitors won't even try. What are you doing in your life to make sure that you are going for those highest hurdles and you're unafraid and you're willing to just keep going? Shoot me a DM, shoot Emily a DM. We look forward to hearing from you. Until next week, I'm Lydia Finette and this is Claim Your Confidence.